Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. We've been for a little while now um, working through 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, those of you who were here in the past couple of weeks will know we started in verse 1 and um, this is probably about the fourth or something um, time we're going to be sharing on that. And just the, the theme of being one. <clears throat> and we interesting thing is um, in, in this verse it says, uh, in verse 12 it says, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one, body so it is with christ and and the whole idea i mean of membership membership of a club membership of a body politic membership of a, any kind of group actually comes from from the scripture and this idea um and and this wasn't just a, you know paul didn't come up with this idea himself it was actually something that that the, the greeks and romans used quite often to explain um, how groups should relate to one another. But, but Paul uses it in a very different way uh, from the way in which it was typically used um, in those days. But, um, you know, the idea of a member, like a member of your body and uh, a body part, an organ or a, or a body part, um, being part of the body uh, was expanded to us as individuals being part of a group. Um, and as we saw... Paul addresses the topic of spiritual gifts. He says right at the beginning of the chapter, now concerning spiritual gifts. But, but the, the theme and the issue he wants to address within the context of spiritual gifts is unity in diversity. Okay, now this is very important because when you have a group dynamic, you can have two extremes. You can have diversity without unity, which is division. Okay? Diversity without unity, that's division. That's the one danger on the one side. But the other danger on the other side is unity without diversity, which is uniformity. So Paul is fighting both division on the one hand and uniformity on the other hand. And I was saying so often we try and impose uniformity in the name of unity. But uniformity is not the same as unity. Uniformity is unity without diversity. What Paul's fighting for is unity in diversity. Or diversity in unity. And, and he even uses God, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as an example and says, because God is a unity in diversity, we as the church should be a unity in diversity. And he's made us all with different giftings, different backgrounds, Jew, Greek, slave, free, but made us all one in his spirit. Um, and, and just Paul is constantly just arguing about how we need both the unity of the body and the diversity of the body. And what we're going to read uh, this morning in um, 1 Corinthians 12, from verse 12 to 27, just makes that same point in different ways. Um, uh, Paul arguing both for the unity of the body and the diversity of the body. And the picture I want to hold up before you, and I, I just want you to imagine this. Um, Many of you have probably seen a YouTube video or clip like this, you know, where a guy sitting, say, with a contrabass or a cello or something, he starts playing, um, and, uh, you know, people stop and they sort of listen, and then sort of 
other musicians start joining, you know, maybe a cello and maybe some, you know, percussion and maybe some brass instruments, uh, a flute or something, um, and they start, you know, playing this beautiful music and more and more of a crowd, you know, starts gathering and like, wow, this is impressive. And eventually, you know, a whole choir joins and it's this flash mob, you know, orchestra flash mob. And it's beautiful, but the thing that makes it beautiful is two things. The first thing is that there are different instruments and voices. If, it was, if, if they were all just cellos playing, if they were all just trombones playing, it wouldn't have sounded as beautiful. It's the diversity of the orchestra, on the one hand, that creates this astounding beauty. But the other thing is not just the diversity of the orchestra, but also the unity of the orchestra. Because all these diverse instruments and voices are making sounds that are in unity, sounds that are in harmony with one another. And that results in beauty. And, and you must see the people in the crowd's faces, you know, the little children and the people standing around listening to this flash mob as they, as they play some beautiful music. You know, their faces just lighting up with delight because of this unity and diversity of this orchestra, this symphony. And that is the picture that God wants to hold up for us. And he's saying, you are a body that can be a unity in diversity and make such sweet music that can be so beautiful. In bo if both the unity and the diversity is there, you can be so beautiful that the world can look at you with delight and like, wow, this is, this is astounding. This is amazing. This is beautiful. I want to be part of this. I want to be part. But the only way we can do that is if we have both the unity and the diversity of the body of Christ. Now, um, I'm going to read this passage, and I want you to notice a few different things from it. Firstly, um, I'm just going to use verse 12 and 13 as an introduction, but for verse 14 to 20, Paul's actually addressing, I want you to notice firstly that Paul is actually addressing two groups here. And, and these were two of the groups. Now, now, Paul addresses the problem of both division and uniformity because those were problems in the Corinthian church. Now, two of the groups that he is addressing here is the first group he addresses in verses 14 to 20. And those, th that was the group that felt that their gifting was inferior. And they say stuff like, you know, because I'm not like someone else, I'm not part of the body. So the first group he addresses are the group that feel like they're inferior or their gifting is inferior. The second group, which he addresses from verse 21 to 26, is the group that feels that they're superior. And they say stuff like, I don't need the rest of the body. I don't need that other member. So I want you to see those two groups. But then at the end, right at the end, he shows how he applies this body metaphor, this body analogy, you know, uh, when he says, you are the body of Christ, and each of you individually is a, uh, is a member of it. You are the body of Christ. Um, so, you see, the second thing I want you to see, not just the two groups on the one hand, but I want you to see, and I struggle to see this, because I'm used to the, the metaphor or the analogy of the body being applied to the whole church, in other words, the universal church, every single believer in the world. 
And Paul does apply it that way, but he doesn't only apply it that way. Because notice what he says. In the beginning he says, we were all baptized by, in one spirit into one body, right? So he makes it universal. He doesn't say you were baptized in one spirit into one body. He says we, all of us, all Christians all across the world. So that idea of the global universal body is there. But at the end, in verse 27, he doesn't say we are the body of Christ. He says you. You guys in Corinth, to whom I'm writing, you are the body of Christ. In other words, he doesn't apply this body analogy or metaphor only to the global church. He also applies it to the local church, to the church in Corinth. He says, you guys in Corinth, you Christians, you saints in Corinth. And I I love the way he can call them in the beginning of the letter saints, even though clearly, you know, (laughs) their lives were far from perfect. I mean, there were all kinds of problems, divisions, sexual immorality. They were suing one another. There were fights over food laws and all kinds of, I mean... And yet they are saints. But, but he says, you saints in Corinth, you are the body of Christ in Corinth. Now he does exactly the same thing with the temple metaphor, which he also has in the same letter in 1 Corinthians. He, he, on the one hand, he says, we globally are the temple of God. But then he also says, you locally in Corinth, you are the temple of God in Corinth. And in fact, he takes it a step further with the temple metaphor. He says, but you individually, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So you can see he applies both the temple and the body metaphor on different levels. Okay, and if you only think, actually Paul's, um, when he applies it to them and, 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 and uses this analogy in most of what we're going to read, he's mostly thinking local church. Because you can't really compare yourself to people in the global church because you're not in contact with them. His main focus is actually the local church. Okay, so... Um, let's quickly look at that uh, and read that passage of Scripture. And you can follow, either follow with me on, on the screen or you can uh, read with me. I'm going to read from verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And like I said last time, notice, that's a bit unexpected. You're expecting to say, as a body is one and has many members, and the many members form one body, so it is with the church. But he doesn't say so it is with the church. He says so it is with Christ. So he starts off the section by talking about Christ. And as we're going to see in the end in verse 27, he says, and you are the body of Christ. He ends it by talking about Christ. That's important to see. And then verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If a foot should say, because I am not a hand, I, I do not belong to the body, would, uh, it would not, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. For we were, for we all were, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. 
So the previous part was addressed to the guys who felt inferior or who felt their giftings were inferior. Now it goes and it starts addressing the guys who feels their gifts are uh, superior. It says, I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And we... And our unpresentable parts we treat with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lack it. And there may be that, there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So Father, we thank you for your word and we pray, Lord, that you'll minister to us from your word, Lord. Lord, just like, just like the Corinthian Christians needed to hear this, Lord, so we need to hear this. We really need to hear this, and especially in this day and age that we live in that is so radically individualistic, so... Uh, materialistic Lord this so influenced and so Lord almost captive to this consumer mentality and this consumer culture that we have Lord please minister this word to us and help us to be this kind of unity and diversity that the world so desperately needs to see and hear in Jesus name Amen so let's look at those um, those three things. Um, I'm just going to look at those who feel inferior, those who feel superior, um, the problem of those who feel inferior, the problem of those who feel superior, and then the solution of the body of Christ. So, Paul starts off and he says um, in verse 14, um, for the, the body does not consist of one member but of many. And then he explains it. And, you know, I can so relate to what Paul's addressing here because I see all of these problems in, in the church as well. Paul uses personification. You know what personification is? When you take something that is not a person and you give personal aspects to it in order to make a point. So he uses personification here. He takes the body parts, the ears, the eyes, the hands, the feet, and he personifies them. But why does he? Because he's wanting to show us the absurdity of such body parts, such members, thinking and speaking in such a way. He wants to show us the absurdity of the traps that we sometimes fall into. The first trap is, um, he says in verse 15, um, the foot, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Now, so often we do that. We fall into the trap of saying, because I'm not like so and so, because I don't have his gifting or her kind of gifting, I'm not part of the body. And you can almost hear the self-pity there, right? Can you hear it? Because I'm not like them, I'm not part of the body. And... 
And what, what happens here is it results in separation. It results in separation. I'm going to separate myself from I'm not part of the body because I'm not like so and so. And so often we can get down on ourselves and look down on our giftings because our giftings are not like other people's giftings. And, and, and often it's our own fault to some extent, but also sometimes we as the church don't help each other because we celebrate certain gifts and make much of them and other gifts are not appreciated much at all. That is also true. There are certain gifts that are not valued as they should be. And maybe you have that kind of gift that is not as valued as someone else's gift. And you look at someone else's gift who's like really celebrating. Everyone's like, whoa, you know, he's the man, you know. Look at his great gift. And, and, and what do you feel? Look at, look at what I have, you know. It's peanuts. It's nothing. It doesn't measure up. And then the temptation there is to fall into self-pity and then say, okay, because I don't have their gift, I'm not part of the body anymore. No? Feel sorry for yourself and separate yourself from the body. The other one is he goes uh, and, and he personifies you know, body parts and says, because I am not an ear or an eye or a nose, I'm not, uh, you know, or I, I don't need, I don't need the ears, I don't need the eyes, I don't need the nose, I don't need the other body parts. Can you see the superiority here? I already, you know, I, I don't have, need the other body parts. I'm, I'm okay, you know, all by myself. I don't need anyone else. And instead of self-pity, you have arrogance. But once again, it leads to separation. That's what I want you to see. It leads to separation. I don't need them, so I'm going to separate myself from them. And then, if we don't get the point, um, Paul makes sure, he says, that's why God made the body different so that there would be no divisions in the body. But that everyone would have the same care. All the body parts would have the same care for one another. So, so here's the point Paul is trying to make, and that he makes very powerfully, is that both these approaches, the inferiority approach and the superiority approach, leads to Vision. It leads to people separating themselves, either out of self-pity or out of arrogance, separating themselves from the other body parts and saying, I don't need you, or I don't want you, or I don't want to be part of you. Now, what I want you to see is this. In both cases, the root problem, the problem underneath the problem, I mean, we look and we see the problem of inferiority and the problem of superiority. But what I want you to see is the root un problem under both of those problems is exactly the same. What is it? What is it? Well, you can see it in the language. What is the one word that is repeated in all Paul's personifications? Whether it's the... Well, eh? I... Whether it's the hand or the foot or the eye or the ear, the one word that is always repeated is the word I. And that gives you a clue to what the problem underlying the problem is, the problem beneath the problem. It's selfishness. It's selfish pride, egotism. That's the problem. 
Now, when we talk about superiority, you'd say, yeah, of course. You know, I see that. You know, it's, it's obvious. But, but some of you are like looking at me and saying, but inferiority? Selfishness? Pride? Selfish pride is the root of inferiority? Yes. It's exactly the same problem. The problem is that self-absorption, self-centeredness, always leads you to focus on yourself and compare yourself to others. And it can, that comparison, that self-focus, which, and the comparison that comes out of it, can lead in one of two directions. If you feel that in your comparison of everyone else to yourself, you're doing quite all right, you're making the cut, then you feel superior. And it leads to arrogance. And it leads to the separation that comes from arrogance. I don't need you. Or, on the other hand, if in your comparison you feel that you're not making the cut, that you're not doing so well, that you're not comparing so well, it leads to inferiority. And the self-pity that flows from that, and the separation that flows from that, because I'm not like them, because I'm not a hand or a foot, I'm not part of the body. You see, the root problem is the same. It's exactly the same. Exactly the same. Selfish pride. Self-centered pride that compares itself. And that either feels it's doing well or feels it's not doing so well. Which results in the superiority or the the feelings of superiority or the feelings of inferiority. And the reality is we all struggle with that. Now, I mean, one one of the challenges of self-centeredness and pride is that it hides itself very well. Doesn't it? And, and we've got to let the gospel scratch here a little bit beneath the surface and, and, and bug us a bit. Sometimes the gospel does that, you know. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. So the gospel sometimes makes you mourn in a good way so that it can eventually comfort you. Self-centeredness and pride, self-centered pride really hides itself well because it wants to think the best of itself. So when we have self-centered pride, we want to think, wow, we're, we're actually great, you know. We're really so humble. <laughs> you know, um, if you meet someone who's really humble, you won't come away from them thinking, wow, that person's really humble. Because if you come away thinking, wow, that person's really humble, it means the person was putting the spotlight on themselves the whole time. Which means they're not humble. (laughs) If someone is really humble, you'd come away from them thinking, wow, that person's a really nice person and they were so interested in me. And pride, I mean, someone once said that pride is like bad breath. The person who has it is always the last to know about it. (laughs) You know, everyone else, you know, smells your bad breath when you're talking to them, but you don't like, like, uh, you know. (laughs) It bothers everyone else, but you're not even aware of it. And that's one of the serious problems of pride. It's it's like bad breath. The the person who has it is always the last to know about it. I mean, let, let me just illustrate this. 
I mean, many of you, you know, as I was talking about pride now, many of you were probably sitting here thinking, I wish so-and-so was here. They really need to hear this. <laughs> but, but doesn't it take a certain amount of pride to listen to what the Scripture says about pride and think that it only applies to other people? <laughs> and to not even think, but how does this apply to me? You see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. In our fallen humanness, we all tend to naturally, in our fallen state, think that we are the center of the universe. You wake up in the morning and it's like, ah, I'm the center of the universe. But you don't say it in so many words. But, but I mean, you know, you sort of feel that. And then you get up and you bump into all kinds of people. You know, first people in your family who live in the same house of you, as you. And then people outside there in the world... And you're absolutely shocked that they don't know that you are the center of the universe. And they absolutely fail to treat you as though you're the center of the universe. I mean, how could they not know? What is wrong with them? But to add insult to serious injury, not only are they blissfully unaware that you are the center of the universe, they think they're the center of the universe. I mean, come on. Seriously? <laughs> now I'm joking with this because I'm like Paul to trying to show us the absurdity of the way that our fallen brains naturally want to think. We naturally tend to think that way. So often, so, so often without even realizing it. And, and when we are self-centered, without knowing it, we do almost everything... We're most focused on our concerns. On what we care about. We're focused on our concerns. And, um, you know, Paul says the, the body, the, the, so the different members of the body can have the same care, or, or you could also translate it the same concern for one another. But, but we tend to focus on our concerns. Now, what's important to me? And, you know, when we do come to the body, when we do join ourselves to the body, when we do become part of the church, uh, whether that's the, the local church as a whole, or whether that's a small group within a local church, how do we come? We come thinking, um, what's in this for me? How does this church, this local church, benefit me? Or how does this small group benefit me? I remember in, in Stellenbosch, um, when I was still a pastor there, one of the band members coming to me, and, and he was a very mature guy. Or, let me rather put it this way. He'd been in the church for a long time. <laughs> and he come to, came to me and he, and he said to me, yeah, you know, he doesn't really go to small group because he doesn't really get anything out of it. And, and he thought that was a pretty legitimate reason not to go to small group. I said to him, do you hear yourself? If you say you don't go to small group because you don't get enough out of it, it means you haven't been going to small group for the right reason for, at all to start with. You shouldn't just go to small group for what you can get out of it. Because it's not all about you. And especially, I mean, 
you know, this, is, uh, this was a guy who'd been in church for a, quite a few years, probably decades. I think he grew up, you know, in a religious environment. It's not about you, you know. How can you be in church so long? How can you be in church so long and never grow beyond the place of maturity? Because, I mean, that's how little children are. It's all about me, my needs, what can I get? And I'm going to throw a tantrum when my needs are not met. And, and still be a spiritual infant. But then the reality is, when I look at myself, honestly, I see much of the same. I see much of the same. You know, myself also often coming to church for what I can get from it, for how I can benefit from it, how my concerns are addressed, how my needs are met. Not how can I meet someone else's needs, but what can I get from it. Very often I see that same thing in myself. So I, I can't even stand in judgment. I, I mean, I did stand in judgment over that guy at that stage, but then I realized, but hang on, I'm not always that different. I have the same, ba same bad breath. I just don't realize it very often. You know, and, and often, you know, it will, it will not only cause you to focus on your own concerns, but it will cause you to focus on your own comfort. Self-centered pride always makes you seek your own comfort. That, that's what the consumer culture that we live in and that's so encouraged through the media is all about. Your comfort. How does it make you feel? And if you're around people that make you feel not so good, you know, inferior, then you withdraw from them. Because I'm not a, a hand or a foot, I'm not going to be part of this body. I'm going to go and find people who can make me feel good. You see the self-centeredness there? Or, you know, I don't need these people. They add nothing to me. I'm going to find someone who can actually add something to me. Both pride. Now, now here's the thing. Um, let me extend Paul's metaphor or Paul's analogy a little bit further to us in modern times. In, in, in Paul's time, when he was writing to the church in Corinth, the church in Corinth was the, was the only church in Corinth. There was only one church in Corinth. But, but nowadays, in Corinth... And in Joburg, there are many churches. Okay? And, and so, you get the trend of, you know, if we come with this mentality, the self-centered pride, if that's our motive of coming to the body, of living in the body, then we will hop from one church to another to, find and, to try and find the church that best serves my need and where I feel the most comfortable. You know? And you get to a church and it's like, you know, the nose says, ah, oh, you know, this is a terrible body, you know. The, food, the feet stink. You know, I don't want to be part of this body. The feet stink and, and besides, they're beneath me. Excuse the pun. <laughs> or it's like, oh my goodness, the ear says, oh, this voice is really terrible, you know. <laughs> it, 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 you know, it really can't sing. And here's the thing that you forget. Here's the thing that you forget. It's not only the things about the body that bless you that God has put you in the body. It's also the things that, about the body that bug you or bother you. Those are also, because in both cases, both for the guys who are inferior, who feel inferior, and the guys who feel superior, notice what, what the solution is that Paul gives. He says, that God has placed all of us in the body. Let me actually read that to you in, in Paul's words. In verse 18 he says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, 
as he chose. That's to the guys who feel inferior. And to the guys who feel superior, in verse 24 he says, but God has composed the body. The solution to both those feelings, or one of the solutions, part of the step of, of solution, um, to both the feelings of uh, inferiority and to su- superiority, number first, firstly, number one, recognizing that you have the bad breath, <laughs> recognizing the problem of self-centered pride, and then the second one is recognizing the divine design of the body, recognizing that God placed us. And remember, like I said, um, in verse 13, it talks about we are baptized into one body, but in verse 27, he says, you are the body of Christ. So he specifically has in mind here the local body in, in, in this section, uh, even more than, than the global body. Why has God placed you in this local body? I mean, to, to, the, to the nose that says, no, oh, the, the feet, you know, <laughs> they really bother me, you know. I'm going to go to a body where there are feet like these, you know. Or to the ear that says, no, the voice bothers me, you know. I'm, I'm going to go to a, to a body that has a better voice. Why did God put those, that, that nose and those ears in this body? You see, the, ear, this, the nose must remember that if the feet bug it, there are other noses out there that's supposed to be part of this body, and those same feet are going to bug them. If, if, if the ear says, but the voice bugs me, then it means that this body is not singing the beautiful song that it ought to sing to draw the world in and proclaim the gospel with. Here's the thing that I want you to see. The things that bug you about the body reveal the very reasons why God put you in the body. The things that bug you about the body reveal your function in that body. Why God placed you there. But our self-centered pride and consumer approach, because so much of Christianity today is consumer Christianity. We deal with spiritual things exactly the same way that we deal with, you know, church becomes just a shopping mall that I come to, you know, where I can buy things that make me feel good about myself and where I can sort of take what I like and, and leave what I don't like. But like Michael Horton said, the church is not a group of friends that you pick for yourself. The church is a family that God picks for you. That's why it says, but God has placed each member in the church as He wished. How are you going to deal with the selfish pride? In fact, the only place you can discover the selfish pride is when God puts you into a group of people that contain some people that you like and some people that you naturally, in the natural, don't like. Some people that you get along with very well but other people that you don't get along with well at all. That's the only way God can expose our own selfish pride to us and then start dealing with it. But what do we do? In our consumer mentality approach, and because we're little, you know, we've been conditioned to be little consumers of, I'm just going to do what is comfortable to me. We say, okay, you know, I've been here for, for three years and now, you know, I'm starting to discover, you know, that these people are getting on my nerve. You know, there are some people who are blessed me. There are some things about the church that bless me. But some people are really getting on my nerves. I'm going to find another church where there aren't people that get on my nerves. And the very thing that God wanted to do to expose that self-centered pride and to deal with it, he short-circuit that process by following the path of least resistance. 
But here's the thing. Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily. Follow me. When you start following Jesus, you have left, you have departed from the path of least resistance. Discipleship, the way of discipleship, the road of discipleship is a radical departure from the path of least resistance. Here's the thing I want you to see. When we come to Jesus, Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Repentance is taking a principal decision that I am no longer going to be living self-centered pride as I naturally tend to live. Making that principal decision. But guess what? That doesn't solve the problem. Just making that, I mean, all of us, you know, if you, if you become a Christian, if you repented, you've made that decision. You've denied yourself. But that doesn't solve the problem. Then you have to take up your cross daily and follow Him. Follow Him where? Follow Him to your death. <laughs> follow Him to your death. Let's not, you know, tell this little um, dirty secret, you know, these terms and conditions to people who are not Christians yet. But the, the Christian, the gospel invitation is an invitation to come and die. But unless you come and die, you cannot live. Of course we need to read the fine print for people, you know, because you don't trick someone into that. Jesus says, if you, want to desire, if you desire to, to, to come after me, deny yourself, make that principal decision, but then follow through on it daily by daily, taking up your cross and dying to yourself. And it's not pleasant, I know. You know, I, I was thinking about this this, this whole week, and, and, and uh, this strange picture came up to me. I mean, you know that, that story, that... Um, horror story of um, Frankenstein's monster. You know, it was the scientist Frankenstein who got all these body parts together, sewed them together, you know, put them on a stone slab, you know, and then somehow got, you know, lightning to strike it, you know, and the body came alive and it was like, you know, Frankenstein's monster, you know, this body that was sort of, body parts that were sort of sewn together. Okay? Now, now keep that image in one side of your mind. Now, you, you know the painter Picasso? Now, and, and especially later on in his career, he became known for, for you know, painting these very weird paintings, right? You know, where the, where, the, where the nose was, you know, where the eye should be and the eye was where the mouth should be. And it was like, you know, the ear was like really weird. And it was like the Holy Spirit was saying to me, you know, so many people in the modern church, because they can church hop, you know, they, they get into a church where I want to work in their lives, where I want to deal with their selfish pride, their self-centered pride. But they don't want to. You know, they may be a, that nose that says, no, I don't like the feet, you know, so I'm going to move on. That now you get bodies, local church bodies, where there are noses all over the place because they really cater for noses. They make sure the feet don't stink. In other words, here's what the Holy Spirit said to me. So much of, so many modern local churches have become Frankenstein Picassos. We have all kinds of noses, you know, sewn together, you know, all over the place. And all the people that are noses go to that church because they cater for noses. And all the people that are ears, 
you know, the prophetic guys, say for instance, they go to that church group because they really cater for that. And they're just ears all over the place, you know, Frankenstein, Picasso. And I understand that. I understand that urge. You know why I understand it? Because I felt that temptation myself. You have to. Don't sit and look at me like that. You have to. <laughs> you have to, right? You see, I'm, I'm a teacher. So I've always been a little ill at ease in shofar. Because we have a very young tradition, you know. There are, you know, traditions, you know, like the Baptists and the Anglicans and who knows what that have been around for hundreds of years and they've done a lot of theology and they, you know, have whole, you know, they have training centers and seminaries and, you know, well-known theologians, you know, uh, all over the place. You know, and I read those guys and I think, wow, these guys in many senses are way ahead of us because, you know, obviously they've had decades and sometimes hundreds of years more than us. You know, we're only 25 odd years old to, to build up a tradition of scholarship. And, and, and in many senses, because that's the way God wired me, I'm very comfortable with those guys. And I actually long, you know, to, to have some discussions with guys like that. But there aren't many guys like that around in Shofar. You know, I, I really, I'm really bothered about how to interpret Scripture, and that Scripture must be interpreted correctly. And my, my wife always talks about my boring books. I, I read books about hermeneutics. Some of you are going like, Herman who? <laughs> Hermeneutics is the, the science and art of interpretation. So how to interpret the Bible. Because that's important to me. You know, th that's the stuff that, you know, that they're boring books to my wife. They're not so boring to me. I, I really enjoy that stuff. Almost none of the other pastors in Shofar read that kind of stuff. They also find it boring. They agree with my wife, <laughs> you know. So in many senses, you know, I've at times felt, you know, you know, wouldn't it just be easier to go and find some other charismatic Baptist church or something and go and be a member there. And then the Holy Spirit says to me, Any, stop being stupid. There's a reason. Okay, he's, he's much nicer than that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. You know? <laughs> the Holy Spirit's very gentle and nice. He doesn't say it that way. But, but, but basically that's what it comes down to. You know? I realize I'm being stupid because there's a reason why God put me in Shofar with the gifting I have. It's because... Part of my calling is to help develop that tradition of deeper scholarship and deeper learning and deeper study. No? I, the Baptist churches already have hundreds of people like that. They don't need me. I mean, they have guys who are much better than me. We have, who are much more advanced and, and much better at interpreting Scripture than me. They don't need me. Why would I want to go from a, a, a church group that actually needs me, even though... You know, I feel a little like the odd one out sometimes. To a group that doesn't need me at all, but where I'll be very comfortable and fit in and, you know, have nice hermeneutical discussions with, you know, other teacher types, you know, who, <laughs> who like that kind of thing. <laughs> but we all want to do that. That's why I say I can understand the temptation. But can you see that ultimately that results in Frankenstein Picasso's? Local churches that are Frankenstein Picasso's, that are monstrosities, that are unbalanced. Instead of, you know, just having two ears, two eyes, a nose, and a mouth, they have ears all over the place, no mouth, no eyes, monstrosity. And the world looks at us and like, oh, you guys are weird. No wonder. We are weird. 
Because we don't want to accept the divine design of the body that God has placed us in the body where He wants us to be. And that's not always what we want or where we'll be comfortable. Because God is more concerned with our character than our comfort. Remember that, by the way, for, for the unmarried guys, when you get married too, okay? <laughs> and when you discover that your wife also not, doesn't always agree with you, you know, remember that God's more concerned with your character than your comfort. He's not going to give you the wife that makes you feel most comfortable, or the husband, for that matter, that makes you feel most comfortable. He's going to give you the husband or wife that's going to help you. If you're a Christian, that's going to help you to become more like Jesus. Right? And it's the same. God placed you in the body that you need to become more like Jesus. And God placed you in the place in the body where you can not only become more like Jesus, but help others become more like Jesus. Now, so the first thing you need to see is you need to smell your own bad breath. You need to discover your own self-centered pride. Then you need to see God's divine design. And when you say, like the foot, you know, because I'm not a hand, I don't want to be part of this body, what you're actually doing is you're, you're, you're insulting God. You're saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. You didn't know what you were doing when you placed me here. Or you didn't know what you were doing when you gave me this gift. But the third thing that you need to see is that every gift, every person's gift is necessary for the body. Every body function is necessary for the body. Whether you're looking from the perspective of inferiority, you know, because I'm, you know, a foot and not a hand, you know, I'm, I have to, you know, I get full of dust, you know, and the hands, you know, they're always washing themselves, you know, always clean and soapy and they smell nice. And I have to, you know, be in the stinky socks and the shoes and, you know, get in contact with the dust and they never do. Well, guess what? The whole rest of the body needs you. The whole rest of the body needs you to carry its weight. To have contact with the dust so that they don't have to. The other body parts don't have to. And God designed you so you can handle it. God didn't design the hands to handle that. The hands would all be all raw and broken. And useless for what the hands are supposed to do if the hands had to walk the whole time. So... Where does that leave us? You see, in, in the end, the very last verse that I read for you, verse 27, it says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And he said, as the body, as many members, one body, but even though it's one body and many members, so it is with Christ. And he says in the end, you are the body of Christ. Notice the repetition of Christ. Notice he doesn't say you are the body of Jesus. He says you are the body of Christ. And I think that's significant. What does Christ mean? What does the word Christ mean? No, it's not Jesus' surname. It's Jesus Christ. His mom and dad were not Mary and Joseph Christ. I got some of you. Yeah. <laughs> what does Christ mean? What is Christ? It's not his surname. It's his title. What does it mean? Messiah. Exactly. It means Messiah. Christ, Christos, 
is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. What is the Messiah? Messiah is the anointed king. The anointed king. So, here's what I want you to see. A few things. Number one, I want you to see that um, Jesus is the anointed king. We are the, part, we are the body of the anointed king. Now, in Israel, the king represented the people. Think about David. Little King David. Okay, before he actually became king, but he was already anointed as king. He goes out and he fights Goliath. It says Goliath was the champion of the Philistines, which means that David was the champion of the Jews, the people of God, the representative, the one who fought on their behalf. Now the greatest son of David, who is the anointed king of the line of David, he is the Christ, the anointed king. He represents us as David represented Israel in that fight against Goliath. He represents us. In, in everything, the king has the authority to represent the people. And when it says we are the body of Christ, think about what happened to Christ's body. Think what happened to our anointed king. Firstly, his body hung there on a cross and was tortured to death. Instead of a crown of gold, he had a crown of thorns on his head. But he was the anointed king representing his people. And his body died. And it lay in the grave for three days. Then it rose again. And we are the body of Christ. Now, by that, I don't mean that Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead. He did. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 makes that very clear. But in dying and in rising, he represented us as the anointed king, as our anointed king. He represents us. And here's the thing. Here's the thing I want you to see. Because, I mean, it's one thing accepting that and being by one spirit baptized into one body. But here's the thing. Paul is talking to people who are already been by one spirit baptized into one body. And they're still getting it wrong. They're still struggling with feelings of inferiority or superiority. So just getting saved and becoming part of the body doesn't solve your problems. I mean, that's a necessary first step. You can't solve the problem of self-centered pride without being saved, without being born of the spirit. But just being born of the spirit doesn't guarantee that your problems are solved. You see, we got to see that Jesus represented us. And here's the thing. Remember the, the hand says to the, uh, or the foot says to the hand, I can't remember which way around, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. You see, Jesus was the one. Jesus was the one human being who could have legitimately said, because I'm not like, like them, because I'm not one of them, I don't want any part of them. See, Jesus was the only human being who was not a sinner. And he was the only one who said, because I'm not a sinner and they're all sinners, because I'm not like them, I want no part in them. He could have legitimately said that and he didn't. That's from the inferiority angle. But what from the superiority angle? The ear says, I don't need the food. Guess what? Jesus is the only human being ever who could have said, I don't need them. I don't need any of them. So I don't want any part of them. And he didn't. 
He was the only one who was not like us in our sin, and He was the only one who didn't need us, and yet He chose to be one of us. To become one of us. To not, through, you know, self-pity or arrogance, separate Himself from us, but in love and concern for us, and at great expense to Himself, die for us on the cross and represent us on the cross in both His death and His resurrection. And when you have been so represented, so unselfishly represented, then you can do it yourself. You see, Paul goes on, and the very next chapter, right at the end of this chapter, he says, yet I will show you a more excellent way. Right? And then he goes on to that famous chapter of love. Love is patient, love is kind, all those kind of stuff. All of that represents Jesus. He even says, even says, if I gave my body to be destroyed, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Guess what? Jesus did give his body to be destroyed. Do you know why it did profit him? Because he did it out of love for us. That was the reason why he did it. The only one who never had to do it, who didn't have to do it, he comes and he does it for us. He does it for us. And if you have been so represented, if you have been so loved, then you can love so in return. If you have experienced and received such a self-sacrificing love, but not only received it, but your heart has really been touched by it, and you constantly remind yourself of it and say, I've got to take up my cross daily because Jesus took up his cross for me. And you daily apply that truth to your heart and to your life. Then you can love others like Jesus has loved you. Imperfectly. But you can start doing it. And start doing it. You see, one of the best definitions of love that I've heard was um, by a commentator called Bruce Waltke. And he said, love, biblical definition of love is disadvantaging yourself in order to advantage others. Disadvantaging yourself in order to advantage others. When you see how Jesus has disadvantaged himself in order to advantage you, then you can say, Lord Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to be like you. Just like you didn't have any self-centered pride that you were willing to sacrifice yourself on the cross for me, so I'm willing to sacrifice myself in your body for you. Because, you see, here's the thing. When you love the body, you love Christ. Isn't that what he says? Many members, one body, so it is with Christ. So it is with Christ. And when Paul wrote that, he didn't make a mistake. He didn't intend to say, so it is with the church, and then by accident wrote, so it is with Christ. He understood the association that Jesus Christ makes with us. He understood it because Jesus revealed it to him on the road to Damascus, even before he got born again, when, when God knocked him off his horse. What did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Why are you persecuting me? 
Not why were you persecuting my church? Now Jesus is sitting up in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And yet he's saying, not why are you persecuting my church? He's saying, why are you persecuting me? Why? Because we, his church, are his body. That is how united he is with us. In, in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 17, you can go read it for yourself. He's talking about, you know, don't give the members of your body, and he uses the same language, the members of your physical body, don't join them to a prostitute. Because when you do that, when you, when you, you know, join yourself sexually to a prostitute, you become one body with her. That's what God intended. For, for this reason, um, Genesis 2, at the end of Genesis 2, for, for this reason will a man leave his mother and father, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. One body. So he says, don't do that. You know, Sex is for, for making covenant. It's, it's not for self-gratification or self-expression. It's for self-donation. It's for self-giving. It's for giving yourself in covenant. It's for joining yourself to someone in covenant. But then he follows it up right after that and saying, but he who has joined himself to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus, is one spirit with him. And that's why it starts off in saying, in one spirit we baptized into one body. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that through his spirit, Jesus made a marriage-like covenant relationship with us. Now, if I had to ask Albert, his wife Renette, in kids' church now, but if I was to, had to, you know, say I came to Renette and I started dissing her and saying nasty things to her, what do you think Albert would do? Now, I'm a bit taller than Albert, and I think I weigh a bit more, but what do you think Albert would do to me if I started dissing and disrespecting his wife? He'd minister the fivefold ministry to me. He'd, he'd lay hands on me. <laughs> he'd lay hands on me and minister the love of God to me. <laughs> Why? Because Albert and Renette are one. They in marriage covenant with one another. He loves her. Now here's the thing. Albert's, Albert's love for his wife Renette pales in comparison for Christ's love to his bride. And the intensity of the covenant relationship that he has made with his bride. You see where Albert and Renette are one body. The bride of Christ and Christ are one spirit. And therefore part of one body. What do you think Jesus is, how do you think Jesus is going to feel if you start dissing his body, his bride? He's going to get hurt. That's why I said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? I'm feeling this. Every time you hurt one of my people that I'm in covenant, marriage-like covenant relationship with, it hurts me. I feel it. Because I, they are part of me. I become one with them. Take the converse. How do you think Jesus is going to feel when you start self-sacrificially loving on his bride, his body? How do you think he's going to feel then? He's going to feel great. I'm telling you, one of the best ways to love someone is to love their wife or their children. People that, are, that they're in covenant family with. So if you want to love Jesus, love his bride. But here's the thing, like I said, 
The only way you can do that is if you see Jesus has done that for you. He's represented you. He's done that for you. And then say, but I am part of that bride. I am part of his body. What does it mean? It means I represent him. Just like he represented me, I now have the opportunity to represent him. And just like he took up his cross and went to his death, you know, sacrificed himself for us, so I can now daily take up my cross and follow him to my death. Lay down my life for the body. Just like he laid down his life for the body, I want to imitate him by laying down my life for the body. Not my physical life. But understand that as I'm laying down my life for the body, I'm actually laying my, down my life for him. As I'm loving, self-sacrificing way, loving on the body, I'm loving on him. He feels that love. Only then can we do this. Only then can we do this. If you say, Lord, I still see some of that self-centered pride in my life. And I want to deal with it. And I want you to deal with it. I just want you to quickly stand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. Just stand. And then I just want you to close your eyes. And just focus on the Lord. And I just want you to, in your own words, just say to the Lord, Lord, I want to see. Thank you that you've already helped me to take that first step of seeing the pride. The the first step of dealing with pride is always seeing it. The first step of dealing with sin is always seeing it. So thank you, Lord, for already helping me to see that pride. That self-centeredness. And then say, Lord, help me to see that you have gifted me and placed me in the body as you wish. And that you've done the right job. You've done a good job about it. And that both my gift and the gifts of those around me are necessary. Even the gifts that I don't naturally like so much. Or that, that I'm not so impressed with. And then here's the, the main thing I want you to focus on as you pray. And just do this in your own words. I'm going to give you a minute or two. Just say, Lord, as you unselfishly represented me, so I want to unselfishly represent you. Help me. Help me to become more like you. Help me to become more like you. Just in your own words. Yes, Lord, you, you know that so often, Lord, either out of the self-pity of inferiority pride or out of the arrogance of superiority pride, we want to separate ourselves from one another. We want to separate ourselves from the body. We, we, we don't want to be in the body, in, in, the, in the place, in the way that you have placed us. Please forgive us for that, Lord. 
Lord, we acknowledge our pride. We acknowledge that we so easily fall into self-centeredness, into self-absorption. Please forgive us, Lord, and please help us as we look to your absolute unselfishness on the cross. As we look to you who could have said, I'm not like them, I'm not sinful like them, I don't want anything to do with them, or I don't need them, I don't want anything to do with them. How self-sacrificially you gave yourself. Lord, help, help us, inspire us through your example, to follow your example. We want to be like you, Jesus. We want to be like you, Jesus. Not in order to earn our salvation or to earn the right to be part of your body, but because we're already part of your body. Because you've already given us that grace. Because you've already accepted us. Because you've already loved us. Thank you for the joy. Thank you for the... Thank you for the relief of already being accepted. Out of that, that joy, that acceptance, we can serve you and be like you. I just want you, I mean, you know, I just feel the Lord saying that in different people's lives, this self-centered pride manifests in different ways. Just bring the, the ways in which the Holy Spirit showed you how it manifests in your life. Just bring that before the Lord and just, just say, Lord, I repent of it. Please forgive me. Please help me change specific in what you bring to the Lord. feel the Holy Spirit is saying you know, our lives would be so much better if we would not constantly feel hurt by others and if we would not constantly hurt others <laughs> and can you see that that self-centered pride is what causes us to feel hurt by others to feel inferior or to hurt others by feeling superior to them imagine how much better imagine how much better your life would be if you didn't have selfish pride in your heart Imagine how much better your life would be if you didn't have the selfish pride in your heart. And I, and I just feel the Lord is challenging us with that urgency to now deal with it and say, Lord, I really don't want this anymore. I see it and I really don't want it anymore. So Father God, we just come and consecrate ourselves to you, Lord, and we, we humble ourselves before you so that you can lift us up. And we thank you, Lord God, that there is hope for us, Lord God. That you make us like you as we follow you. Thank you for our cross. Thank you that the cross destroys our selfish pride. Thank you that the cross we take up every day kills us. Kills the old us. So that the new us that is like you, that is recreated, new creation like you, can shine through. 
let it be so more and more every day lord and and i just want to pray lord for each person here and for myself lord that we will not give up on taking up our cross just because it's uncomfortable just because it's painful just because we feel like we're dying that we realize that that's how we're supposed to feel in jesus name and i pray lord that every person here will boldly bravely take up their cross and follow you daily in jesus name i just bless your saints may the grace of the lord jesus christ the love of god the father and the constant fellowship of the holy spirit be with you always in jesus name amen Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you received produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jobberg.